Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode of our movie monster bracket. So, a little bit of an introduction. As you're listening to this now, it is or will have just been Friday the 13th. And we figured what a better time to start. This will also take us all the way through the Halloween season. And we have a special surprise that will be dropping on Halloween. So, keep your eyes peeled for that as soon as it goes up. But let's go ahead and talk about what our goals were with this bracket a little bit. We've now been doing something fun for Halloween for a little while, and it was a result in doing something kind of like our sports bracket where we go through the top-grossing film for each of the big universal monsters. So top-grossing vampire, top-grossing werewolf, etc. And eventually we kind of narrowed it down to eight big ones we really wanted to hit on. Not all of them will have a universal movie monster counterpart. Specifically this week, we have an example of that in The Exorcist. Which we classified as being an extraplanar evil. So, you know, demons, devils, that kind of thing. Speaking of The Exorcist, we are also, once again, first round, pairing up the oldest and newest films in our bracket. So we will also be discussing 2017's The Shape of Water. The Gilman entry into our bracket to play off of Creature from the Black Lagoon. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into The Exorcist. In Iraq, a priest is horrified by a statue found in a dig. Meanwhile, in DC, actress Chris McNeil is trying to balance work with taking care of her daughter, Reagan, who's entering her teenagehood. Left alone, Reagan plays with a Ouija board and starts acting strangely. Doctors find nothing wrong, but strange noises from the attic and Reagan's bed shaking violently have Chris on edge, especially after her babysitter slash boss is found dead outside her house. Meanwhile, former boxer Father Karras is already shaky faith is pushed even further when his mother grows ill and dies. Later, Detective Kitterman asks if asks him if he knows anything about witchcraft or corruption in the church, and he says no. As Reagan's symptoms grow more and more towards she's possessed, the doctor suggests eh, try an exorcism. Chris's friend, Father Dyer, puts her in touch with Father Karras. Initially skeptical, he eventually agrees that an exorcism is called for, and church calls in a priest's experience in that sort of thing. Father Marin, recently returned from Iraq. Exorcism goes poorly as the demon toys with them. Marin dies and Karas, in desperation, invites the demon into himself and hurls himself from the window, ending the whole ordeal and his life. Though Dyer, who's there, administers the last rites. Everyone sort of goes home. Uh, Chris and Reagan, who is fine now, go back to LA and Dyer and Kitterman go to the movies. I think a good place to start is talking a little bit about the new Hollywood movement that this film is definitely a part of. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, New Hollywood was a movement in filmmaking happening in the late 60s through the early 80s. Prominent directors who were part of this movement, you have Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. This is kind of where some of the first crop of people who have studied film in like a collegiate academic sense are now starting to make movies. So it's Partially an experimental period, partially a refinement of old styles, and we see a lot of the very iconic elements of this style here. I think the biggest one among them is the very ambiguous kind of downer ending. Yeah, I mean, things work out for the characters, broadly, but... Well, half of them. Eh, I mean, listen... It's not that Karis is a bad person, but his life wasn't really going anywhere. And he got to, he got to die, you know, doing something heroic and martyrful, saving a child. That's pretty good. We confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. Mm-hmm. 
Other things to make note of that pin this in New Hollywood is the editing style that the film is using. Lots of edits, lots of quick edits, specifically using edits to tell the story or get uh, information to the audience. But let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit and talk about the cultural impact that the film had. Boy, howdy, did it have an impact. This was from an older, more sensitive time when the sorts of things that they're showing were very controversial, very um, upsetting for a lot of people. This was stuff that people really hadn't seen. I think especially because the film was doing so well and treating a subject matter with this artistry and gravitas. Not like a sort of disposable B-movie, but like something that deserved to be put on a pedestal. It's dealing with disturbing subject matter and is dealing with it in a way that is sensitive to that without lessening its impact. Right. And it's also dealing with stuff about faith, about children and sexuality, and also just, you know, a lot of, you know, horrific imagery. We're, we're also in the middle of, you know, the countercultural movement that was going on in the late 60s, early 70s, and there's even the film that Chris is working on in the movie is about student protest. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of stuff talking about this film and its interactions with anxieties over rebellious youth. Yes. Uh, I think that is definitely an aspect of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, The film has a lot of people pushing back against it for a variety of themes. You know... You know how people received Harry Potter back when it was first coming out? Imagine that kind of emotional reaction, but maybe with a little bit more justification. There's, Mm. you know, actual, like, religion and devil stuff in this one. Yeah. Well, devil stuff. It's someone else's god, but whatever. It's fine. It's fine. The Babylonians don't count. They're extinct. I... (laughs) Yeah. Please take that as chung in cheek. Yeah. We might occasionally refer to the uh, the spirit in question as Pazuzu. That's the name we learn that it has in later films. That's the deity in question that isn't referenced by name in the film, but is canon. That's who it is. Yeah, throughout the film, it's only referred to as the demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pazuzu is actually just a Mesopotamian deity who, you know, uh, had some myths, some rain, you know. Yeah. The usual for a Mesopotamian deity. Yeah. This is a long line of treating other cultures deities as as demons or devils monsters etc that's just kind of a thing and admittedly Pazuzu has kind of a somewhat scary face so mm-hmm. yeah. there's a lot of backlash against what this film is talking about but I think it was surprising for me to learn about how much there was because by modern standards this is fairly tame I who have you know seen evil who have seen horror who have seen the unholy maggots that feeds upon the dark recesses of the human soul was not particularly shocked by this we like culture and horror have moved on from where this is yeah uh i would not necessarily pin this film as scary i would say disturbing is probably a better place for it in a modern context mm-hmm. i should also point out that neither of us are catholics so i think the the interaction with catholicism was probably much more shocking if you were if you were yes as a f- Someone who was raised Catholic, uh, nah. Okay. <laughs> but that, that, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. We're not raised Lutheran. We don't really have horror movies made about us. We're very chill. With all of the anxiety and backlash surrounding the film, it did surprisingly well. In fact, the studio was not prepared for how well it did. For the longest time, it was the highest grossing R-rated horror film ever. Ever. It only was toppled with It Chapter 1 just a few years ago. Before we get too far from like the production of the film, there's two bits that I learned about the, the casting that I think I want to bring in here. Go for it. There's an alternate timeline where playing Marin and Karis respectively were Marlon Brando and Paul Newman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. What a... What choices that could have been. <laughs> that would have been 
incredibly interesting. Apparently Marlon Brando was turned down because the director didn't want it to be a Brando movie, which I understand, but also I still want to see what that would be like. Yeah, I mean, during New Hollywood, he was a very hot commodity. Like, he starred in the Godfather movies. Dad, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married. And alternatively, uh, playing Chris almost was Jane Fonda. Interesting. But she turned it down because it was capitalist ripoff bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I want to hear everything Jane Fonda has to say about that. It's really interesting. Like they were seeking out some big names, and they they all like were either rejected or turned down. And they went with pretty much complete nobodies for most of the cast. And that's one of the reasons why this snuck up on the studio as being a sleeper hit. The film is definitely trying to do the whole thing of like you know these are real people and this is a, this is a real world experience, as opposed to kind of a more heightened monster movie type thing. Mm-hmm. I think having no name actors helps with that a lot because it makes them feel not like it's not like oh Marlon Brando is fighting a demon. It's you know, Father Karras is fighting a demon. Which, Fair enough. Yeah. Where do you want to go next? While we're talking about casting, I do want to uh, bring up Mercedes McCambridge, mm-hmm. who doesn't visually appear in the film, but the voice of the demon is all her. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. Uh, so she was a star of radio dramas and didn't quite make the transition to visual media. She was middle-aged at the time of the f- uh, filming. She was like 57, which not that old, but in Hollywood years is ancient for a woman, unfortunately. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. She was unfortunately dealing with substance abuse issues at the time, a heavy smoker, but it made her perfect for this horrifying, gravelly, uh, raspy voice that they used here. And her performance is so very good. There's this underlying like sarcasm and snideness that like really brings out the character of the spirit. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? A lot of the acting that she was doing for this was method acting, so she was usually belligerently drunk recording these lines. During certain scenes where the demon is tied down, she is tied down. Ooh, wow. Yeah. It's really unfortunate that during the original release, she wasn't even credited in the film. Which sucks. Yeah. She's so important as a a character. Yeah. Thankfully, that has since been rectified in most... Uh, re-releases, but originally she was not credited because the director's like, no, I want you to think that it's, you know, the um, uh, the actress playing Reagan who is like, changing her voice for this role and make it extra creepy and just kind of lean into the whole, you know, supernatural stuff going on with the film. But it's all real, based on true events kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, again, another thing with New Hollywood is we had a lot of auteur directors, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them turned out to be pretty shitty people. Yep. Speaking of being shitty to women in this movie, uh, shout out to Linda Blair, who still has back problems because of some of the stunts. Yeah. That said, Linda Blair does a great job in this film. Yes. Yeah. Horror has a trend of uh, women beset by monsters being staples that we talk about in the conversation. I think Linda Blair is one of the oldest, you know, names in horror. And, like, this film is definitely part of the tradition of uh, women protagonists in horror. Mm-hmm. We've got some of that whole, like, men not believing women when they say, look, it's a demon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I really think we need to address the film's biggest flaw, and that's the pacing. 
And the, the pacing and the structure, too. Yes. Yeah. They, they kind of go hand in hand. So in my summary, I talked about Iraq, and we don't really... There's not a lot of connected tissue beyond the fact that Father Marin is in both places. We never learn how whatever evil influence is found there got to D.C. And we don't even hear Father Marin's name while he's in Iraq. We don't make the connection until they're looking for a experienced priest to perform the exorcism and his name comes up. And then we get the back fill-ins like, oh, that's why all of the stuff in Iraq was important. But we're there for like a good 10, maybe even 15 minutes. And it's just, there's not really any explanation of what's going on. It could have not been there and the film would have been totally fine. Honestly, probably better. Mm -hmm. We'd have less of this, the scary exotic lands from whence demons come thing. Yeah. Yeah, which, hashtag not great. Mm-hmm. And then we spend a while getting to know Chris and Reagan, who they are. And, and same with Father Karras. And mm-hmm. it's like switching back and forth between the two of them. Uh, this is definitely not a film that uh, juggles. It's it, it's not really even an ensemble cast because the cast is very small, but it doesn't juggle its main characters very well. It basically has just two plot lines that don't intersect for a while. Yeah, like I don't think Father Karras and Chris actually meet until almost halfway through the film. Mm-hmm. At at best. Yeah. I mean, we do have the connected tissue that Chris goes to a party with Karras's um, celebrated friend, uh, Father Dyer. Mm-hmm. But that's about it. And like you know, two priests know each other. Isn't that like but big of a thing? I mean, if you know what the film is about, you figure he's going to be the one who does the exorcism. So sure, yeah. but if you don't know that going in, there's just two narratives. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit that we don't need all of it. We learn a lot about the world these characters live in, but I feel like it doesn't really inform the resolution of the conflict that much. Not much of what Chris is doing as an actress, as you know, her life um, in this kind of seedy underbelly of the film industry, feels like it has a lot of influence on the resolution of the plot. Yeah, like you can make an argument that part of it is the insinuation that this cosmopolitan Hollywood lifestyle is what led to the possession and corruption of Reagan. But the film kind of just leaves some breadcrumbs, but they don't really make a solid argument for that being the case. Mm -hmm. Putting aside that that's a shitty argument to make, I can at least respect the film for attempting to make that argument either in like a positive or negative sense, but it doesn't. It just kind of points you and expects you to finish the picture. I can imagine that, you know, because Reagan found the Ouija board, she somehow contacted the spirit and drew it in or whatever. I don't know. It kind of sounds like you're blaming the victim. I'm not sure, like, why her? Why why this particular kid with a Ouija board, not, you know, mm-hmm. anybody? Yeah, and this first act is just so, so bloated. I mean, it's not that the characters are bad. It's not that I don't care about them, but they're just... Like sitting, spinning their spinning their wheels for so long, like nothing is happening. We have a good sense of these characters much earlier than the film expects us to. It feels yes. like, and I mean, we do have the conflict that Car- Father Karras's mom dies, which that's not fun. But it's not it's not like this big impactful arc. It's just, these are events that we're seeing happening. It's a very slice of life. Yeah, a lot of films start off that way because you need to establish what these characters are like before the conflict happens. But even so, even after Reagan is going through the first stages of possession, it's still very aimless. I'm going to contrast it with The Conjuring, which also has kind of a slice of life thing. It's, you know, uh, dad gets a new job, family moves to a new house. And even though not much happens in the first act, we still get a spooky thing in that first scene. And that's enough to clue us in that the spooky will increase over time. And this is just... um, this is a, a, you know, an appetizer. We don't really have that same kind of thing happening here, apart from, you know, 
uh, Father Marin looking scared of the statue with a huge dong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like, he's got nards. The other big major component of the first act is a lot of the like medical mystery stuff going on with Reagan and all that. And you know what? At the time, that might have been more compelling. But uh, we're, again, nearly 50 years away from the release of this film movie. So a lot of the medical advice is fucking ridiculous in a modern context. Oh boy, howdy is it. This happens a number of times in the film and it never got used to it, but doctors just smoking in the hospital. Uh, imagine what medicine's gonna look like 50 years from now though. It's gonna be really exciting. At one point, the line... Now I know the temptation to lead to psychiatry. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god. Also, uh, this is a girl whose parents are divorced and are not on good terms. I think it's perfectly reasonable for her to at least talk to a therapist just for like an afternoon just checking yeah. on her yeah that's a perfectly healthy thing that parents should do just to make sure their kids are okay yeah the second and third acts are much better in that regard but that's mostly because there's no way they can bloat them they are crammed into the second half of the movie the exorcism doesn't start until 75 percent of the way through the film and honestly even the exorcism feels kind of bloated you know there's some compelling acting some very like exciting shots and and scenes and some really cool visuals but a lot of it is just two dudes reading the bible at a lady in a bed which mm -hmm. while they do the best they can there's not that much of a way to make that exciting i will give them credit their limitations for the time with effects doesn't really hinder them they do a really good job with what they have mm -hmm. there's a gorgeous shot where the priests have been kind of knocked back by the all this uh and reagan is standing silhouetted with light behind her and then the specter of bazuzu kind of appears behind her also silhouetted and it's gorgeous and eerie and beautiful mm -hmm. and because of the way the light is working you don't fully understand how this is interacting with the space of the room and that's really cool mm -hmm. also as soon as they enter for the exorcism you can then see everyone's breath within the room it's mm. like degrees colder than the rest of the house and no one mentions it either yeah like it's just all of this is like very subtle like setting the what the environment is like and it like they are literally crossing a threshold when they enter reagan's room for the exorcism it's very good even things that like as pokey as that pea soup is it is the perfect color to contrast with everything else going on in the in the shots the very purple stoles that the priests are wearing and like some of the stuff like the the head swivelly thing and the um, the stairwalk scene mm -hmm. uh, from the director's cut are, you know, still really cool looking. Yeah. Another major plus for this film is the sound mixing. The sound mixing is so good and it does so much to heighten the atmosphere. Father Karras walks in on the statue of Mary is like, I guess, de defiled with like... Spray paint and like additions of horns and it looks like she's stabbed through. Yeah. It's creepy and weird, but I don't understand. Is that a thing that Pazuzu did on purpose just for him? Is, that, is this stuff happening all over town and we're just not seeing it all? Is this just unrelated and it's just how DC is at the time? Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff like that. And there's some missed opportunities as well. Like, at one point, you and I were discussing whether we missed a scene because all of a sudden, Reagan is at the doctor getting this battery of tests when it's like, why? She hasn't been acting that weird yet. And that is because we watched the director's cut and those, are, those scenes are put in there. Ah, okay. There's also another scene where uh, Chris and Father Karras are 
first meeting and you know she's kind of slowly opening up to him and there's this one point that she kind of like reaches up to her face and this is after she has had an encounter with the demon and gotten like thrown around the room telekinetically Mm -hmm. she kind of has like a black eye and i expected her to like remove the glasses to show him to show like how serious the situation is and she never does Mm -hmm. and it it felt very weird that made me kind of realize yeah this is definitely a very experimental thing going on in a modern film like i don't think a director would have missed that beat Unfortunately, sometimes things with Pazuzu definitely lean towards what would now be considered edgelordy. Ah, uh, yes. And it is like, oh, oh, wow. Like, it's like a 12-year-old on the internet. Oh, Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Paris, you faithless slime. Yeah. And, like, I know at the time that was, like, appalling. Like, how could you do that? But the internet has desensitized us so much to things like that. <laughs> Yeah. If you put that on film, people would, like, show that scene talk about how silly it is. Exactly. Real quick final thoughts on The Exorcist. I think, kind of summing it up, this film does a lot of showing and not quite enough telling, mm-hmm. which is weird, because normally I am always for that, but I think this has gone too far in the opposite direction. Yeah. We maybe needed just, like, one scene of someone in a library explaining how demons work. Yeah. And now moving on to The Shape of Water, a film that has a much better balance of that show versus tell. Mm-hmm. Partially because the main character is mute. Yeah. It's 1962. Eliza Esposito is a mute woman working as a cleaner at a clandestine government lab in Baltimore. At work, she's close with her co-worker Zelda Fuller, who often acts as her interpreter. And at home, her neighbor Giles is her confidant. Eliza has a daily routine, but that changes when Colonel Richard Strickland returns from South America with a mysterious creature, the asset. Curiosity gets the better of Eliza, and she sneaks into the lab and discovers the asset is an amphibious humanoid. She slowly begins to bond with him and teaches him a bit of sign language. Meanwhile, a disagreement brews about what to do with the asset. Strickland wants to just vivisect it and be done and move on for Baltimore, whereas Dr. Hofstetler, a scientist working at the facility, has observed the being's intelligence and wants to keep it alive for further study. Complicating matters further, Hofstetler is actually a Soviet spy, and his handlers want the asset euthanized to prevent the Americans from gaining any more knowledge from it. Eliza hears of the plans to dissect the amphibian man, and plans an escape with the help of Giles, as well as help from Hofstetter in the middle of the heist. They escape with the amphibian man without Strickland learning of their identities. Eliza keeps him in her bathtub and plans to release him into the canal a few days later during a heavy storm. During this waiting period, Eliza and the amphibian man grow closer, even consummating their relationship. While Strickland faces pressure from his superiors to fix the situation, and Hofstetler's handers grow suspicious of him. Things come to a head the day that Eliza plans to release the amphibian man. Strickland tails Hofstetler to his rendezvous with his handlers, kills said handlers, and tortures the spy for information on the asset. Strickland then intimidates Zelda in her home, where Zelda's husband gives up the info. Strickland interrupts the goodbyes at the canal, and a fight ensues. Initially, it appears the amphibian man is dead, but he gets up, heals his wounds, and slices open Strickland's throat. He escapes into the canal with Eliza and heals her wounds as well. It is also revealed that the scars on Eliza's neck are actually gills. Then we are informed by Giles' narration that he presumes Eliza and the amphibian man lived happily ever after. I mean, happily ever after is a decent place to start. Um, the opening and closing narration here let us know that this is supposed to be a fairy tale, even if, you know, a very tutorial type of fairy tale. Or, I don't know, when I tell you about her, the princess without voice, 
perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, you can see the little mermaid, Beauty and the Beast in here. Maybe even a little bit of Hunchback. Sure. And which, you know, not strictly a fairy tale, but sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like the Disney version. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely a fairy tale-ish quality here. That's not uncommon for Del Toro and dealing with monsters. Del Toro loves monsters and exploring monstrousness and specifically doing it in ways that run counterintuitive to what we would normally think of as monstrous. Right. I mean, in the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, the creature was the antagonist as opposed to the romantic lead here. Mm-hmm. The reverse of that, when Michael Shannon and Guillermo del Toro were talking about Strickland as a character, like del Toro mentioned, if this film was made in the 1950s, Strickland would be the hero. Oh, for sure. And he definitely thinks that he is. Yeah. He is dang sure that he's the protagonist. Yes. Uh, which only leads into him being a even better villain. I think that fairy tale quality helps some of the way that the film works. Like we have this very pleasant cafe in France background music. And even a musical dream sequence at one point. Yeah, there's a, this black and white dream sequence between the amphibian man and Eliza that is all just kind of happening in her head. And it's just so ridiculous and it's exactly what the movie needs at that point. Went away and my heart went with you. And it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like we've seen Eliza and Giles watching classic black and white musicals. Mr. Ed, that kind of thing. So it like it is part of Eliza's character, and she is trying to communicate all of her emotions to the amphibian man, and this is kind of in her head what it feels like for her, even though she can't verbally express it. So I've seen this before. This is your first time seeing it, and I was worried how you'd take that scene, because I know that you're not a huge fan of musicals, but it was delightful for me to watch you being delighted by that scene. Typically, my big problem with musicals is that... I have issues suspending my disbelief for a lot of those musical numbers, but the way that this one is framed, it is perfect and it fits so well in with Eliza's character and the the black and white really helps this film. In fact, at one point, Guillermo del Toro wanted to direct the entire film in black and white. I'm glad that they wound up letting him direct it in uh, green and blue instead. <laughs> uh, the palette is something that we can talk about a lot. But speaking of things that look really gorgeous, let's talk about Doug Jones. I love when we get to talk about Doug Jones on our podcast. Me too. Doug Jones, who went to Ball State with us, basically. Not with us, but Doug Jones went to Ball State. Then a number of years later, both of us went to Ball State. Yeah. And Doug Jones, you've definitely seen him before. Especially if you have seen any other Guillermo del Toro movies. He plays Abe Sapien in Hellboy 1, Hellboy 2, and The Shape of Water, basically. He's also the zombie from Hocus Pocus. That one guy who's super into galvanism from Teen Wolf. He's currently on... Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. Um, he played maybe a Kryptonian on Arrow. He's known for his very odd gangly body, his very weird expressive face. Oh, uh, the, he's one of the gentlemen um, in Buffy. And his very expressive hands and limbs, which lends him to being a lo- in a lot of creature makeups. Yeah. He actually has a background in mime, so having nonverbal roles is not really a detriment to him being able to act. You mentioned Abe Sapien. 
I'm not gonna lie, there are parts of this film that really feel like, oh, so you're not going to give me Hellboy 3. Well, I'm not done with Abe Sapien, so I'm just gonna do a movie with him and file the serial numbers off. <laughs> and not very well. By file the serial numbers off, you mean scrape a file across the serial number and call it good. Admittedly, the characters are very different. This amphibian man is a reserved and so, I think somewhat self-assured mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and has a lot more anger to him, whereas Abe is very... Um, uh, neurotic. Neurotic, curious, talks, mm-hmm. funny. The design is also very different. The amphibian man here is definitely kind of a halfway in between the original creature from the Black Lagoon and the Abe Sapien makeup from the first two Hellboy movies. There's a lot more hard edges, a lot more uh, frills, yeah. more teeth. Mm-hmm. Like bony plates as well. It very much is kind of like you know, Beauty and the Beast. Like there are, there are some human... F- features that you can very easily attach to, but there's also some things that are very animalistic that kind of push away, and there's this tension there just inherent in the creature design. Mm-hmm. But also because of the design, uh, and they, they kind of wanted to go for you know romantic leading man vibes, um, he's got like pecs and abs, sort of. The design gestures towards this kind of like Adonis figure. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and talk about Eliza. Sure. Um, So as we've mentioned earlier, Eliza is mute. Mm -hmm. uh, And that stays that way throughout the film, with the only exception being the musical number, and that's like all of her internal monologue. Mm -hmm. I will note that Sally Hawkins is not a mute person, and this film has drawn some flack from disability advocates for the missed opportunity to cast someone who was nonverbal. I mean, Sally Hawkins does a great job with this character. Like, it's a very, a very good acting role. But I'm going to put that in there. There is a conversation to be had there. I don't think that conversation should necessarily be coming from us. Yes. <laughs> kind of doing a comparison and contrast, this film has a few more characters than The Exorcist does. But it does such a better job of moving in between them. Mm-hmm. We have scenes where Giles has his arc of trying to um, get back in his old job with, with his art skills and trying to get in with the pie shop boy and both go disastrously for him. Yeah, pretty much like one right after the other two. That is kind of the last straw that he needed to actually help Eliza with her escape plan. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good that those are all in kind of act one. So like he, he's at first unconnected, but then later in the film, he winds up just being um, part of this main storyline. Yeah, Giles is a really interesting character. So he's a closeted gay man. They never use that word, but the subtext is very, very loud. He is a little, a little stereotyped, but not necessarily in a bad way like they don't fault him for being into musicals and being very um a dandy yeah a p- poofter <laughs> dandy a, dandy does not have the connotations that a poofter does <laughs> dandy i'm okay with yeah i can say it <laughs> While he has this kind of effete quality to him, it doesn't stop him from being heroic, and he doesn't lose those qualities even after he starts doing, like, brave things. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a really good way to have him have these stereotypical traits without being an offensive stereotype. Yeah, and his artistry and creativity are a huge asset during the escape. He's able to forge a ID for himself as well as disguise the truck to look like a laundry truck. Yeah, the guard does see through the forgery, but it was enough to like buy him the time he needed to make things work. Yes. And I think it's still notable that he was trying. Like mm-hmm. he he showed up when he 
could have. And there's a really good like refrain of, I think this is some of my best work. As far as other supporting characters, we also have Zelda who plays a little bit more of a minor role, mostly kind of there as an interpreter for Eliza during the first portion of the film. And to provide a decent amount of comic relief. You'd be grateful because you're an educated woman, but my Bruce, all he had going for him was animal magnetism back in the day. <laughs> Hadn't worked in a while. Yeah. She's played uh, by the incomparable Octavia Spencer. Yeah, who is great in this. Mm -hmm. And then later on, uh, she gets a little bit of a larger role. She happens upon Eliza during the heist and it's like, what are you doing? This is crazy. And then ends up, well, I'm in this now, helping her. Which I think is a really cool bit that all these characters who didn't really have the kind of gumption that would, you know, lead to them leading a crack heist all come together and wind up being brave, which is a really great, like... That pulls on my heartstrings in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And then kind of rounding out our crew of protagonists, we have Dimitri, also known as Dr. Hofstetler. Really interesting, compelling character. There, There's this tension that he has between being a scientist, being a good man, and being a Soviet spy that are pulling him in various different directions and he has to make some very difficult decisions. If only because so much of his dialogue is through both being a foreign language and also layers of subtext while he's trying to interface with people who don't know his full story. I'm never entirely sure to what extent he thinks of the amphibian man as a person as opposed to a scientific curiosity. How much um, he's trying to preserve him for the sake of personhood versus how much just because he, as a scientist, doesn't want to lose this informational asset. But I think that tension is still interesting. It doesn't prevent him from being a fully realized character, even if I'm mm -hmm. never sure quite where he falls on that. Yeah, and you could, with the information that is available in the film, you could very easily read that either way. Mm -hmm. And you could read a change in that too. Yes. And then as for antagonists, we, we've talked about this early where we have uh, Colonel Strickland who is scum. He's the worst. Oh no, no. A man washes his hands before or after tending to his needs. It tells you a lot about a man. He does it both times. Points to a weakness in character. This is Del Toro leaning into exploration of toxic masculinity and the subtle ways in which society does not weed out these terrible white men and in fact rewards them for being terrible. He reminds me a lot of um, Captain Vidal from uh, Pan's Labyrinth, but without the, I think nuance might be the wrong word, but without some of that layers of complication that that character has. Strigland's a very one-dimensional character and I'm fine with it because that one dimension is very interesting. I appreciate that Michael Shannon is having a great time with this man who's just unraveling both emotionally and also literally as his fingers are rotting off. But I could have used maybe like five minutes less of him overall. Yeah, I know the perfect cut. I don't think we need the uh, implication of assault with him and Eliza. Yeah. I, I think that that is a little bit too far. And it's not that it's unrealistic. It's not that that's not how men in positions of power can act. But it is a grossness that we didn't need to understand who this person is. And it doesn't really add to the narrative. Yeah, especially if you contrast that with the man, the guy at the pie shop. We're introduced to him and he seems really nice. Y'all come back now, you hear? And then the facade fades. You should go too. And don't come back. This is a family restaurant. And then that's that's it. We don't need any more of him. He's not important to the plot. And I kind of feel that way about that scene. Like, we already know how awful Strickland is. We don't need that to push it further. Mm -hmm. And that scene really isn't doing anything else. 
Yeah. We started talking about Eliza, then we kind of got off track. There is, um, I think her role as this, like, very driven, emotional heart of the team is really great. Like, there's a, a bit that I can't really put in an audio clip of because it's being done with uh, sign language, where Giles is very afraid of a lot of things, and he doesn't want to help her save uh, the amphibian man because... It's not even human. She responds, if we don't save him, then neither are we, which is so powerful and such a great bit yeah it really is it also does this great job of contrasting with a line said earlier in the film by strickland he's discussing the asset with eliza and zelda in his office it's like just don't go in there uh that that creature is not made in god's image now you may think that thing looks human stands on two legs right but we're created in the lord's image you don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? I wouldn't know, sir, what the Lord looks like. Well, human, Zelda, he looks like a human, like me. I really wish the line ended there, because just the ego of, yes, God looks like a able-bodied white man in a suit. But then the script goes to push it further, and it's like... Or even you. Maybe a little more like me, I guess. And it's just, I don't think you needed to be quite that blatant, but maybe some people need that last bit of shove. Zotaro is not a subtle man. No. So I can understand him being kind of very indulgent with that. That's very fair. Yeah. I agree that that line doesn't need to be like that, but, you know, it's it's hardly going to ruin the film for me. Mm -hmm. I will say some of the interactions with uh, deity-ness in this film are a bit odd. Like, we have the bit with, we have that bit, which is great, but then... They talk about how, um... You know, the natives in the Amazons worship it like a god. Strickland's last words are, you know, to be impressed by the healing abilities of this creature and then to say, You are a god. And I don't fully understand what's happening interiorly for him, because, I mean, it can it can heal, but that doesn't necessarily imply deityhood to me, but also I'm someone who has seen many, many fantasy films. So if you've only seen this thing, maybe that implies deityhood to you. I mean, that's also, like, that's just who Strickland is as a person. Like, that sort of thing, he would definitely feel like that is within God's purview as opposed to anything else. I don't know. Maybe if a scientist did it, it would be different. Yeah, if a scientist stood up and healed from some bullshit, some bullets, I'd be like, yeah, you're probably a god. <laughs> the creature's magical ability to heal, uh, he heals he- one of Giles' injuries and his baldness at some point, and also Eliza's neck and his own wounds, etc. That feels odd to me. It feels like a different stripe of fantasy than the rest of the film does. Yeah, it definitely felt feels a little out of place and out of left field. I think there could have been either more to set that up or um, more to explore that, but also it's kind of hard because the creature can't speak and doesn't have a lot of lines. There is kind of a throwaway line towards the beginning where Eliza's talking about the amphibian man to Giles, and it's like, you saw a mermaid? And like, I guess... Like, you can lean into, like, that sort of fantasy. And the healing along those lines, it makes a little bit more sense. But that's literally the only time they mention Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Magical healing is a very important part of, you know, fairy tale analysis, hero's journey kind of stuff. I'm not opposed to it in terms of, like, the mythic archetype it's interacting with. I just yeah. think the film doesn't quite hit all the marks with that. But speaking of hitting all the marks, let's get into our end segment for this bracket, Monster Movie Magic. So here we just want to kind of go over the visual effects and makeup that bring these monsters to life because it's a very important part of making a monster look good on camera and make it feel real and believable. We really only have two for these films. We've got uh, Reagan's increasingly demonic appearance and uh, the 
uh, Fishman makeup that we've already talked about. Yeah. At length. Both of them are very good. They are good in different ways. So Reagan is all practical effects. Like there's the overdubbing of the voice and there's all the makeup at points. It's a giant puppet for some of the stunts and some of like the projectile vomiting. Whereas we have Doug Jones, his performance, and it is a combination of both CGI as well as practical effects for that costume and makeup. This is really difficult to place for me because the creature is gorgeous in the shape of water but there are definitely some times where i'm like this definitely looks cg as opposed to like fitting wind within this world but that may also just be part of the aesthetic del toro was going for to make him appear more fantastical more fairy tale like um whereas everything going on with reagan and pazuzu like it all feels very grounded through pop culture osmosis i've seen the um you know the demon face that we get towards the end of the film but i hadn't realized how effectively they transition transition into that face because we will just get like a bit of sunken eyes on reagan and then she'll like her skin will be a little paler or a little more pallid and it, the devolution into that is really well done mm-hmm. the vigor of the motion is well not quite as magical as the mvb man is still very effective mm-hmm. Because, again, practical. Yeah. I do think it's also fair to grade on a curve because this was done in 1973 and does not have nearly the uh, resources that Guillermo del Toro did for Shape of Water. Mm -hmm. Because I know what's moving on. I think I might want to give it to The Exorcist. My thinking is, especially since you brought it up, like the slow evolution of Ray, and I think that's really interesting. I think it's really well done. I think that kind of just edges out The Exorcist for me for this category. For sure. Uh, So let's go ahead and move on to our final vote for this week. Well, while The Exorcist is definitely uh, one for Monster Movie Magic, I think The Shape of Water wins for best film here. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, also in the Oscars. (laughs) Yes. I, I would agree. I definitely preferred The Shape of Water to The Exorcist. That isn't necessarily to say that The Exorcist is a bad film. I just think that it is showing its age um the cultural zeitgeist that was occurring around it at release is very far gone at this point and it doesn't have the same impact also because of how influential it's been in horror films there have been a lot of imitators and so some of the tropes and things are a little they're not quite as special as they were on release whereas the shape of water you know it's it's very new so that helps a lot of it you know, both for visuals and storytelling and also with some of the diversity of its cast it is very much turning culture on its head it has some thoughts about america and what needs to happen with outsiders and capitalism and it has a very progressive outlook whereas yeah. the exorcist is fairly conservative with his take on things yeah there's also just the fact that the the pacing issues are very noticeable for the exorcist it is not up to par as far as a modern movie in that regard which is really unfortunate Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in horror and you haven't gotten around to it, it's still worth watching, if only to understand some of the places horror has come from. So that marks the end of horror. Um, actually, sorry, one more reason to watch this movie. Uh, between recording and finishing editing, I started watching The Exorcist, the TV show. Um, it's all on Hulu right now. Unfortunately, it only got two seasons. It's really good. I would advise watching the movie The Exorcist so that you can watch the show The Exorcist and get what it's doing, because it is truly phenomenal. Um, 
Really can't recommend it higher. So that marks the end of our first episode of The Monster Racket. What do we have coming up next week? Well, we have our vampire movie, Interview with a Vampire, and our mummy movie, The Mummy Returns. Yes, The Mummy Returns had a higher box office gross than The Mummy, so we're watching a sequel. probably not do that but both of us have seen both the mummy and the mummy returns probably close to a dozen times ah yes a dozen (laughs) for the most part the mummy returns doesn't really require a whole lot of foreknowledge from the previous film they kind of fill in all the blanks for you but yes we will actually have a sequel on the bracket as opposed to like the first film in a franchise and, and also interview the vampire which is maybe based on a sequel book i don't know i can't keep track of all of the Anne ran vampire novels and rice i said what i said um so we hope to tune in next week thanks for joining us yeah. once again this has been the gratuitous pausing podcast thanks for tuning in